Well, good morning, West Campus. How is everyone? Good. Good morning to those of you watching on Facebook Live. I have a question to pose for us this morning. You ready? How do you define greatness? How do you define greatness? Is it LeBron James hitting a jumper to win the NBA championship? Or Tiger Woods sinking a 15-foot putt to win the Masters? Is the Beatles coming to the America, coming to America in the 60s? Or Taylor Swift cranking out platinum records? Is the business genius of Steve Jobs founding Apple? Or Elon Musk reinventing the vehicle with Tesla? Is it Abraham Lincoln leading our country through the American Civil War? Or Martin Luther King leading the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s? Is it a single mom raising four kids on her own? Or a dad coaching his son's little league team to a championship? How do you define greatness? Well, Wikipedia says greatness is a concept of a state of superiority affecting a person or object in a place or area. Greatness can also be attributed to an individual who possesses a natural ability to be better than all others. Now, that's a great definition, but here's what I think. I think people follow greatness. Greatness changes lives. Belief is initiated through greatness. And greatness transcends all pain and suffering. Our text today is John 11, 1 through 44. Jesus is the final word. So we're reaching a turning point in the life of Jesus. He's headed to Jerusalem to die for all humankind. This is the fourth message in our series called Turning Point. Jesus brings sight to the man born blind. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus exposes the unbelief of the Jewish religious leaders. We're continuing in this series to learn how to live and love like Jesus. So in this message, John presents his seventh and final sign of his gospel. John, in my opinion, has saved the very best for last. And there's a whole lot of verses here, 44 of them. We're going to move through the first 24 pretty quickly for context and setting. We'll dive a little bit deeper in those last 20. You ready? All right, verse number one. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is the first time that we hear of this Lazarus in John's gospel. Luke mentions a Lazarus in Luke 16, but scholars believe that's a different Lazarus. That's a different guy. The name Lazarus means God assists. Bethany means house of suffering. In Luke 10, we learn Mary is the reflective one. She's the listening one. Some of us probably can relate to and identify with Mary. Martha, on the other hand, is the distracted organizer. She's the driver. She's the older sister. Some of us can probably relate to and identify with Martha. Verse 2, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus, Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who, per, who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. I think this is interesting because John previews this event with Mary that actually happens in the next chapter in John 12. Let's go on, verse 3. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Notice, for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loves 
his friend Lazarus. But the story won't end in death, Jesus says. Both God the Father and Jesus will be glorified through the life of Lazarus. And I think that we can all, we can all relate to and identify with Lazarus. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? Jesus was in Perea on the east side of the Jordan. He stayed there for two more days. Why did he stay? Why would he stay two more days? Surprisingly, John tells us that he stays because he loved this family very deeply. The disciples fear the safety of Jesus, but just as we have seen throughout all of John's gospel, Jesus is committed to his father's agenda. He's not committed to the agenda of the disciples or anyone else. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Jesus is the light of the world. He walks and works in the light and in the will of his Father. Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant excuse me, natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The disciples are confused, so Jesus clears things up, and he points to his purpose here, which John notes as the reason he recorded the signs, or all the miracles in this book. As John 20, 31 says, it is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So how will the disciples respond? Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now we think of Thomas as the doubter from John 20, but that may not be fair. This disciple here demonstrates great, great courage. In a scene change, Jesus arrives on the outskirts of Jerusalem. This is danger zone, according to the disciples. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. The four days mentioned by John here, this is significant. The Jews believe that a person's spirit was locked out, or the spirit is gone after three days to enter Sheol, or Hades, as it's called. Jews considered this to be the place of the dead. So there was no question to the readers, no question to the onlookers. Lazarus is dead. He is as dead as a doorknob. Verse 18, now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. We sense that this was a prominent family. This was a wealthy family. As many came, a whole lot of people came, uh, largely from Jerusalem, to mourn with the family. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. The original language says that Mary was seated in the house. So the Jewish culture, in Jewish culture, mourners typically sat with the loved ones in heavy mourning 
in support of the family, usually for about a week or so. In contrast, Martha, she was the active one. She was possibly the hostess, so she rushes, she runs to greet Jesus. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus as she greets him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. At first blush, we think Martha may be rebuking Jesus here in this moment. Rather, I think she's a grieving sister who had hoped for a much, much different outcome for her brother. Martha continues in verse 22, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha demonstrates the commonly held view of afterlife, of resurrection by Jewish people, what happens in the last day, what happens in end times. That said, that's not what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is referring to life today, not life tomorrow. Martha demonstrates a measure of faith through her understanding in the, of the connectiveness of Jesus to God the Father. But Jesus wants more. He wants more from Martha. Jesus seeks personal application to her knowledge. So friends, the table has been set. The table is set for what may be the greatest of all the signs in John's gospel, possibly the greatest of all the miracles of Jesus. This is a turning point. This sign is a preview of what will happen in the life of Jesus in just about a week's time. This is a preview for what could happen in your life someday. So in verses 25 through 27, Jesus reveals his identity and power. Jesus is about to comfort Martha with his ministry of truth. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus claims, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And now Jesus provides his fifth I am statement, his fifth one, one that connects heaven and earth, connects life and death, connects the supernatural with the natural, connects the future with the present, connects the eternal with the temporal. This, in my opinion, is Jesus' most climactic statement in this passage. This is the climax of this passage in word. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Never die. Resurrection and life refer to two different but very complementary things. Resurrection refers to the final resurrection of believers in the last day. Life refers to the fact that those who believe in Jesus will come to life. They'll come to life. The life Jesus refers to as a saving life. It's an eternal life. He who believes will never, ever die. Wow. Wow. He who believes will immediately possess eternal life. John writes in John 8, 51, Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And then in John 3, 16, probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You will never see death. You will have eternal life. This truth provides the believer hope 
provides a believer hope in the midst of pain and suffering. Jesus not only provides resurrection and life to believers, Jesus is resurrection and life. He is the source. He is the power. That is his identity. That is who he is. That is his nature, resurrection and life. As the writer of Hebrews claims in Hebrews 7, 6, Jesus, the high priest, possesses the power of an indestructible life. The power of an indestructible life. Just like Jesus, you will die physically, but you can live spiritually. You are indestructible. And speaking of an indestructible life, what do a horsefly, Jesus, and our dog Bendy have in common? Well, let me tell you a story. So we have a miniature golden doodle. Her name is Bendy, cute little thing. When she needs to go outside, she rings a bell at our front door. She goes in, in and out, in, 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 out, and she wears me out, absolutely wears me out. So a couple weeks ago on a Saturday, I had an idea. I left the door cracked a little bit open so she could come and go as she pleases. Well, we live in the middle of the woods out here on the west side, so in come the horseflies. They come pouring in, and there was one particular horsefly that I could not kill. He was indestructible. I'd smack him out of the air, couldn't kill him. He landed on a wall one time, popped him, bounced right back to life, indestructible. Then he finally landed on our island in our kitchen. I popped him, fell to the floor. <laughs> Bendy, our dog, ate him up. That horsefly does not have an indestructible life. No, I don't believe he, does he have the resurrection power of Jesus. <laughs> Back to our text. Jesus then asked Martha, Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the Son of God who has come into the world. Martha takes an additional step here with her confession of faith. This cannot be denied. But, friends, this is not the end of our story. Is this a true confession for Martha? Well, we're going to see later in the passage that Martha wavers in her faith. She missed the key point of Jesus' message. Her faith is doctrinal. It's not personal at this point. It is a head faith. It is not a heart faith. New Testament scholar Gerald Borchert writes, We must all be warned that verbal confessions and life commitments are not always partners with each other. Fortunately, Jesus loves Martha just like Jesus loves you and me. He continues to pursue Martha just like he pursues you and me. So he reveals to her, demonstrates to her his identity and power. Let's go on to the next section of Scripture. In verses 28 through 37, Jesus identifies with and feels the pain of those he loves. Jesus is about to love Mary with his ministry of tears. We pick up in verse 28. After she, she is Martha, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. Now, this is significant that Martha calls Jesus teachers. Rabbis did not teach women at this time, only men. Verse 29, when Mary heard that she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Did Jesus really call 
for Mary? Or is Martha trying to arrange a private meeting kind of as a take-control sister here? Regardless, Mary moves quickly. Verse 31, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So much for a private meeting, right? So the entourage of mourners, they follow Mary. In Jewish culture, the bereaved family hired professional mourners to console the family, to aid in the grieving process. Very different than our culture. And let me tell you, there were a whole lot of them that were there. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you would have been there, my brother would not have died. We're reminded of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in John 3.12 and in Luke 10.39 as well. Mary repeats Martha's statement that Martha made in verse 21. Lord, if you would have been there, my brother would not have died. And just like Martha, I think Mary's tone really is one more so of grief than rebuke. I don't think it's a rebuke of Jesus. And now we hear, the, we view the heart and hear the heart of Jesus. Jesus is both fully God and Jesus is fully man. We see a glimpse of how he sees hurting people. Death is something we will all face. And this passage shows that Jesus is not at all indifferent to pain and suffering. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping or wailing loudly, crying loudly, and the Jews crying loudly who had come along with her, he was deeply moved and he was is troubled in the spirit. So where have you laid him, he asked. The natural interpretation of this scene is the picture of Jesus who loves Mary, who misses Lazarus, who's experiencing grief and empathy and pain. Now, Jesus does all that. Jesus certainly does love Mary. He does miss Lazarus, but he demonstrates it with a much, much different emotion we're going to see. The translation for deeply moved implies an anger, a disgust, indignation, and outrage from Jesus. The translation for troubled implies that Jesus is disturbed. He's stirred in his spirit. So this is the same Greek word that's used when Jesus predicts his death in John 12, 27. It's also the same Greek word when Jesus predicts his betrayal by Judas in John 13, 21. Jesus is ticked off, actually, in this moment. He's angry. So why? Why is Jesus angry? Well, it could be one of many reasons, but I believe, most of all, Jesus is angry at sin. He's angry at sin itself, sin that causes pain, sin that causes suffering, sin that ultimately resulted in the death of his good friend Lazarus. Jesus hates death. He hates death. All that to say Jesus identifies with the pain that those he, and those that he loves, and he will respond to this particular emotion with power. So verse 34 goes on to say, Come and see, Lord, they replied. The they is probably... Mary and Martha here. Then Jesus expresses another emotion. One of the big verses that we memorized as a kid, right? Verse 35, Jesus wept. <laughs> Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man keep this man from dying? Now the Greek word for wept here is very different. Very different from the weeping of the mourners 
from verse 33. This is not a loud, demonstrative wailing or crying. This is a quiet weeping, kind of a shedding of a tear in a reflective moment. So why is Jesus weeping? Well, the same sin and death that prompts the outrage of Jesus also causes his grief. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes, Grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance. They go together. Now we come to the final verses of the passage. Jesus acts upon this emotion that he has. This is Jesus' most climactic move in the passage. This is the climax of the passage in response. Verses 34 through 38 through 44, we learn that Jesus' love drives him to show power over death. Jesus is about to wow the Jewish onlookers with his ministry of power. We pick up in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said, or roll the stone aside. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there for four days. This guy had been dead for four days. It reeked in there. This cave was much like the tomb provided by, by, to Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea. Wealthy families had tombs with disc-shaped stones to be rolled. These stones typically kept the animals out, but in the case of both Jesus and Lazarus, these stones will not be enough to keep them in. Once again, Martha's practical. She takes charge. She says, he will stink. Watch out. The body of Lazarus would have begun decay, even to the point where the spices that were laid about his body would have been rendered absolutely useless. Martha also, Martha also in this moment demonstrates a lack of faith. She lacks faith in what Jesus is about to do. Verse 40, then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus reveals one of his purposes for the miracle he is about to perform, his glory, the glory of the Father. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. They rolled away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of all those people standing around here, that they may believe that you sent me. There's another purpose for the sign of, of Jesus, the belief of the witnesses. So Jesus did not pray for the Father to help him with the miracle. That was not why he prayed. He was merely thanking the Father. He prayed loudly so the onlookers would know that it is God the Father who is performing this particular miracle. And now, friends, it's about to get weird. <laughs> this is like something out of a Steven Spielberg movie. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Other translations say, Lazarus, come forth. I envision a James Earl Jones voice, Lazarus, come forth. Right? Church father Augustine said, if Jesus had not named Lazarus, he would have emptied the entire cemetery. <laughs> Jesus has power. He has power over death. 
power over the death of Lazarus, power over his own death, power over the death of you and me. His power is present. His power is future. His power is eternal. His power is great. John 5.25 says, Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John writes in our final verse, verse 44, the dead man came out. I find this kind of ironic because Lazarus isn't dead anymore, right? He's alive. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. The very mourners who doubted Jesus were the agents in the completion of this miracle. Lazarus was wrapped tightly and thoroughly in the tomb, just like Jesus. Those long, narrow strips of linen that looked like bandages were very similar to those of Jesus. The head of Lazarus was wrapped separately, just like, just like that of Jesus. The resurrection of Lazarus foreshadowed the resurrection of Jesus. Lazarus experienced what Jesus experienced. That said, there are differences that exist, right? Although Lazarus spiritually lives forever, his body's going to find a grave pretty soon, right? Jesus will never die again. He'll never die again physically or spiritually. The resurrection of Jesus is a beautiful picture of your future life and your future body upon resurrection. Let me ask you, do you believe in the resurrection of Lazarus? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? If so, you can experience a resurrection of your own. Amen? Amen. Let's recap. Jesus reveals his identity and power. Jesus identifies with and feels the pain of those he loves. Jesus' love drives him to show power over death. Seems almost silly to say it, almost flippant to say it. Jesus is great. <laughs> Jesus is great. Jesus defines greatness. Jesus invented greatness. LeBron James, Taylor Swift, Elon Musk, even Abraham Lincoln. Even Abraham Lincoln, they all pale in comparison to the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The greatness of Jesus is revealed in his power and in his love for us. Remember what I said earlier about greatness? People follow greatness. Greatness changes lives. Belief, belief is initiated through greatness, and greatness transcends pain and suffering. Let me ask you, are you following Jesus? Has Jesus changed your life? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust Jesus' control over your pain and over your suffering? Because you're going to have it. How will you respond to the greatness of Jesus? He is the one who has the power over your death and love for you amidst all your pain. Here are a few takeaways for you. Number one, trust in Jesus. Jesus understands your deepest 
trials. His heart is moved and troubled by your pain. He mourns when you mourn. He weeps when you weep. Battling with a health concern, had a significant change in your work life, lost someone you loved. Jesus cares for you. Trust in Jesus. Number two, rely on his power. The compassion of Jesus would not be enough if he didn't have the power. Struggling with a sin in your life, having trouble forgiving someone, experiencing a deteriorating relationship with a family member, release all those personal efforts to him. Rely on his power in your life. Number three, focus on life through Jesus. That power that Jesus has doesn't matter unless it is called upon, unless you accept it. Have you lost all hope? Do you fear death? Do you feel like something is missing? Something's missing in your life. God has conquered death for you. You have life today and you have life eternal. That doesn't bring hope, friends. I don't know what does. Focus on life through Jesus. Jesus is great. He's great in his deity and he's great in his humanity. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. Tim Keller says, his greatness is shown by his weakness. His meekness and weakness is shown by his greatness. They go together. John Piper writes, for God so loved the world that at the cost of his son's life, he brought us us into an everlasting, knowing, admiring, loving, enjoying of himself and Jesus. The love of God is the gift of himself, and the greatness of that love increases in proportion to the greatness of his glory. I pray, I pray that you will see that your only response, your only response to the greatness of Jesus is the fall to your knees, to fall and worship Him and accept Him and trust Him and believe in Him with all that you have, whether it's for the first time or whether it's a rekindling of your faith, a rekindling of the fire within you. My friends, Jesus is great. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You. I thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus. He is great. We can trust Him. He has power over death. He has power over our pain and our suffering. God, He brings life to us. That's who He is. He is the resurrection and the life. May we believe that with all that's within us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.